Hello, everyone, and welcome to or welcome back the Lion's Guide podcast, where we're working to save the world by helping people have more courage, clarity, and be better, higher performing leaders. And before you tune out and say, hey, y'all, another leadership show, and I'm not a leader, I'm not in charge of anyone, I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. We're all leaders, whether we're in charge of someone or not, we're always in charge of ourselves, and the same rules apply. So, Happy to have you here. Uh, this is a really powerful episode where we're going to talk to Mr. Dan Jarvis. But for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Dale Walls. I'm the founder of Lions Guide. And today I'm going to explore Dan's story. You know, and Dan is a retired Army Sergeant First Class whom I've come to learn about over these last few months after having stumbled upon his impactful work over at the nonprofit he started, 220. And, you know, in this episode, really, Dan and I are going to explore a story of how following, you know, his combat deployment to Afghanistan, where he suffered the physical and emotional injuries of multiple IED explosions, he found himself suicidal as a means to end his mental torture of post-traumatic stress. And today, Dan's going to tell us about how he survived the consideration to end his life, to go on a mission to cure the injury of PTS for himself. And now... Along with this team at 220, Dan has saved thousands of veterans, first responders, and other civilians suffering in silence with trauma. You know, and his mission is to heal our heroes. And this is going to be one of the more impactful stories you're going to hear here on Lions Guide. I'm honored to share it with you. Um, it's impacted me. Um, I now volunteer with 220, having seen the success rate of the, the process and the impact and really the joy on people when they have this relief. Uh, we, we dive into that in this episode. So you'll hear more about it. You're going to, you're going to love this. A lot of, a lot of insights here about what trauma is, you know, how it impacts us, what the symptoms of it are. Uh, a lot of this stuff I've just learned, you know, and, and it's really uh, brought a lot of awareness into my life. So I uh, hope you guys get a lot out of it as well. So, before we get started, if you like the sound of that, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content here on the podcast. And this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide, and we serve in a whole bunch of other ways. So if you've been tuning in, getting value from the show, you've got other stuff out there for you. You can go to lionsguide.com and join for free the Lions Guide members community called The Pride. And we've got a ton of free content out there for you, training lessons and performance, uh, replays of leadership topics and other lessons. Also, again, high performance, productivity, personal development, mindfulness, all kinds of good stuff out there. Um, and it's not just me. You know, this isn't DaleWalls.com or Dale Walls Podcast. Uh, I've learned a lot from folks out there. And as I come across folks that have you know, impactful stories to share or lessons to teach even, you know, we've been putting that stuff together out on lionsguide.com. So it's out there, go out there and check it out. And uh, that's it. So hope to see you there. You know, we're on the other platforms too. You know, we've got a uh, members community out there on Facebook where we're carrying on the conversation about the podcast and the lessons we've learned in our, in our own growth journey. So uh, check it out. You know, like I say, joining the pride is free and I'm putting it all together to help you guys grow, break out of your ruts, break through to that next best version of yourself, establish that clarity, build that courage and be the true leader of your life. So check it out now. Go to 
got Lions Guide. Go to lionsguide.com and join the pride today. Look forward to having you. And with that all said, let's start the show. guys today on the lion's guy podcast we've got mr dan jarvis who's an army veteran and also how i met him he's founder of a really impactful organization 220 nonprofit. uh and we're going to get into all i'm not even going to try to explain what you guys are doing that's why i got you here i want you to really break it down for us because it's man there's so much value in what you guys are doing so uh look forward to uh talking to you about that and dan welcome to the lion's guy podcast tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do Hey, Dale, appreciate it uh, for the opportunity to share uh, our story and journey with your audience. Uh, Dan Jarvis, um, I'm a combat veteran, United States Army. I deployed to Iraq for 15 months, Afghanistan for 12 months. I also served as a law enforcement officer in Central Florida for about seven years. Um, I, I started the nonprofit. It was actually about four years ago. Actually, it was four years ago, April of 2018. And and it wasn't, I mean, it was kind of funny how, it, well, it wasn't funny how it started, but um, I was married at the time and, and I had just left the sheriff's office. And, you know, when they say the idle mind is the devil's playground, it truly is. Um, I kind of spiraled, you know, all of the emotions started flooding back, the nightmares, the intensity of the nightmares, the night sweats. I was like, what is going on? I thought I was I was past this. Um, so I actually went down the VA rabbit hole, you know, looking for answers. You know, I didn't have a, a badge or a security clearance to worry about. So I'm like, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm needing some help here, right? Uh, and then of course, you know, the VA, their first protocol is here, fill this prescription, go, go take these antidepressants and, um, and then we'll start scheduling therapy. And then I went down the, the therapy uh, rabbit hole with a VA and, you know, I, it was the first second, second session they called to cancel my third. And when I tried to reschedule, I couldn't get in for four weeks. And then I went back and then they, they canceled another follow-up appointment and now, I was this your first like exposure to therapy or anything like that? Very, very, very first time that I ever went to therapy was through the VA. Uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, exposure therapy is what they do. That's called prolonged exposure. And then they do what's called in vivo exposure. So they give you homework assignments. Uh, but what I found is I, you start activating those emotions. You start opening boxes that I, I had no desire to open um, because, you know, obviously 27 months deployed in combat and seven years in law enforcement and not to mention you know, probably the worst stuff was in childhood. You know, I was like, this is going to take forever to get through. Um, so that was really my VA experience. And I was like, okay, this, there's got to be a better way. So and then Dan, I just started. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but let's, so that said, let's rewind it. Like, so how'd you, how'd you get there? Cause we jumped into like, you were having these, these physical reactions to what we're going to talk about today, which is trauma. But like, how did you, how did, how did you get there? Like what, what was, the, the story behind kind of getting you to that point where you're having the struggle. Yeah. I appreciate you uh, bringing me back to that. So it was really my second deployment to Afghanistan. That was probably the most um, significant, even though the first deployment, we lost more guys. Uh, I was directly impacted on my second deployment. Um, four of my men were medevaced out of country, not to return to the fight. One of our soldiers was killed that I felt extremely responsible for I had I stepped on a pressure plate. I detonated an IED on a dismounted patrol that was literally like five feet away. By the grace of God, I'm even here. Um, that was just 
probably what really started a lot of things because that's when the sleep stopped. Uh, imagine being in combat, doing combat operations, and you're a squad leader, right? Your job, you have a, I've got a nine man group and I have attachments, you know, radio operators and machine gun teams that you're responsible for. Um, and then you're not sleeping. So what happened is after that first IED blast, that was late uh, July, I think it was July 28th of 2011. I literally, every time I would close my eyes, I would hear an explosion in my mind and I'd be up. So were you uninjured? Three- like you were uninjured from the IED well, plate? T- I had t- I TBI. They took me off the battle roster for about a week and, and I fought tooth and nail to get back onto it, you know, because you want to lead your men. Um, even right afterwards when, when major Greenberg says, Hey, you're not, you're not going out for a while. Dude, I, I was with my PL and my, Hey LT, you need to go tell the major that, Hey, I, I need to get back on the battle roster. I got to get back to work. I got men to lead, you know, that whole, you know, the whole bravado of the infantry. And he went and talked to the, to the doc and came back and says, sorry, sorry, Jarvis. But, uh, he said, if you experience another blast that's significant within a very short period of time, they can kill you. I'm like, okay. At that point I was like, all right, I'll take my week off and took the week off. And then I got back on the battle roster, but I'm not sleeping. All right. First, you know, first few times the, that I would, I would literally not off to go to sleep. I'd hear that, that explosion and my heart's racing like 180 beats a minute. I'm thinking incoming is coming into the fob and I'm putting my gear on and nobody else is. And that's when I realized, okay, something's, something's going on. And so then I had the physical, you know, sleep deprivation is, you know, man, that, that just jacks everything up. <laughs> so if I've yeah, learned so anything, I'm like, man, I have nothing without my sleep, brother. I, I, I that's the one I, I don't compromise on that anymore. I've just learned it just not the same person, you know, without sleep. Well, sleep is so important because that's, that's how we hit our REM sleep. And then we can actually at that point start processing uh, our emotions and but so I'm not hitting REM sleep. So we're talking, and then three weeks later, I'm I'm in the lead convoy, uh, lead truck commander in a striker convoy, and my job on, on the lead is to find the IED so we can bring the EOD guys, the explosives guys up and exploit it. Um, and when the the IED detonated in the fourth vehicle behind me, uh, that's when I realized I missed it. Right, and that's when we lost Doug Cordo. Uh, I remember, you know, August nineteenth, nine thirty six in the morning in the Zabul province of Afghanistan, like it was yesterday. And from that moment forward, man, I just hated myself. And the reason I hated myself was because here I am leading men in combat and I should have had the courage to say, hey, I'm not doing really hot right now. I might need somebody else up front. So those are the things that would would go through my mind. I'm like, would Doug still be here if I had another NCO up front? Would they have found it? You know, and, and ultimately... Um, the, I put the blame on myself and, and, and I realized later that I didn't place the IED. I didn't do anything unethical or, or immoral. You know, I did what I was trained to do. Um, and we probably, it was deep buried. We probably would have never found it anyway. And it was command wired. So it wasn't like the, the mine roller couldn't have detonated it. You know, it was, it was command wired and, and that vehicle was targeted, um, because it was, you know, an MGS main gun system striker, which has a one Oh five howitzer on it. So it looks like a tank with wheels. Uh, because they hit that vehicle a second time as we were dragging it out. Um, so yeah, it was, that was just a wild day. And I remember just, just seeing the look on the guy's faces when we got back to the, to the forward operating base and, you know, everyone was just, it was devastating. You know, this, this, you know, Doug Cordo, this kid was the, he was like the, the humor of the platoon, right? He was the, the one who would do the stupidest stuff, but make you laugh. Right. Um, so that, that, that was tough, you know, so, yeah, you know, I still I progressed forward from that, um, and I still lost guys even after that. Um, and then at the end of the deployment is when everything just unraveled. I got a Red Cross notice 
And that's when I got word that my mom had had a massive heart attack and she probably wasn't going to make it. So I'm helpless. I'm like, I got guys, do I stay? And then of course I'm grateful. My first sergeant was like, Hey, Sergeant Jarvis, we got three weeks left in country. We don't need you. You're going home. So he made the decision for me. Um, I didn't make it in time to say goodbye. And, you know, I remember after doing the funeral services and I'm back in Alaska waiting for my guys to come home. Uh, first thing I did is I went to a class six store, which is a liquor store on base. And I got a case of beer and I drank until I passed out. And then I realized, Oh, I can sleep. Right. Uh, and that just kind of became a routine. You know, I would drink, sleep, repeat, right. Go to work, drink, sleep, repeat. Um, not realizing how detrimental that was from a mental health perspective. I know now, um, it was not allowing me to process those emotions. It was not allowing me to hit my REM sleep cycles. And, you know, and then the depressing part of the alcohol, it was just making things just worse. Uh, and, and it was literally a year after we returned, I'm literally sitting there looking at a rifle in the corner of my room. And I'm like, you know what? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I said, just take one second, pull the trigger. Uh, but fortunately, you know, the kids that lived in the apartment above me just kind of ran across the floor. And I'm like, whoa, that's the stupidest idea ever. You know, and then I realized, you know, high power round would go right through the ceiling. Um, and I had no desire to hurt somebody else. You know, my, my beef was with myself. So I went to sleep that night, you know, just, just like normal. And then it was March 2nd, uh, 2013. My phone rings about 8.30 in the morning. It was Ryan, who was my driver in Afghanistan. And goes, hey, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? And I'm like, you know, you know when those questions are asked, somebody's either dead or in jail. And I'm like, nobody, what, what, what's going on? So Corey shot and killed himself last night. So I was like, holy crap, you know. Um, and I just remember at that moment, I looked at that rifle and I was like, man, if we'd have lost two in one night, what that would have done to the, to the morale of a, of a unit. Um, so that week, preparing for Corey's memorial service um, helped me to realize this can't be my exit plan. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to green light my guys to do the same thing. And plus, I saw how it impacted them on a personal level, how it devastated them. So I always credit Corey for saving my life. Unfortunately, it's when he took his own. So that's one of the reasons why I think we work so hard as a nonprofit, because uh, for me, this is extremely personal. Uh, you know, and I was eventually medically retired uh, from the Army. Uh, September 11th of 2014, the Army says, hey, we need a we need a healthy body, because at that point, I'd already had three surgeries on you know two shoulders and both shoulders and my knee. And, and I got it. It was in that 2014 drawdown. And then and I realized my last surgery was a high risk because, you know, I'm, I'm literally in that mid-level of staff sergeant promotable at the time. Um, and then once I had the surgery, that was like they dropped the, the medical evaluation board paperwork. And doctor says, we, you know, you're, you're no longer fit to be a non-commissioned officer in the infantry. So um, I get it. You know, so that started my, my transition journey. Um, and Wait, I went, were you uh, were you understanding of that or a bit resentful of it? Like, well, how was that affecting you? Because that that's the thing, right? Like, you know, you, we see a lot of veterans that they 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 love the army, they love the Marine Corps, they want to be there for life, they want to be the twenty six year guy, and then they get right. processed out for whatever reason. I, I, I it's been my experience. It wasn't my experience, but in talking to others who experienced it, it's a bit ripped the band aid off too. In some cases, where. I, you know, but yeah. what was your experience and how well, did the, the initial, the initial reaction was a very raw kind of like, man, this is my life, right? What, what am I going to do now? I am, I'm at this point damaged goods, right? Um, you know, I wanted to retire out as a Sergeant major. That was the goal. Um, I would have eventually got to that path. And, 
now it's gone. But but at the same time, you know, the intellect of me realizes that, hey, this is for the preservation of, of liberty and life as we know it. You know, if I can't do the job, somebody else needs to. So I, I did understand um, because, I mean, I wasn't young. I mean, I was I was what, 42 at that point. You know, so 42 years old, which is literally that's I was at that age rack range of most of the sergeant majors um, because I had such a break in service from when I first enlisted. Um, you know, so I'm 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 already on the high level of that spectrum. I mean, it probably would have been 50 by the time I hit sergeant major, but I still would have done it if I could have. And, you know, yeah, I, I, I understood. So I, I did understand uh, the need to to have a healthy NCO leading men. So, um, it it was, I mean, it was a big pill to swallow. It was one I, I, I took it with, with stride. Um, I was, I was fortunate. One of my wounded warriors, um, in Afghanistan, his father was the elected sheriff of Seminole County, Florida. And I got to meet him after we brought all the wounded warriors and the gold star families up in our post deployment ball. I was kind of his chaperone. He actually talked me to go back into law enforcement. And I didn't even really think about that, you know, and and I did. I went. I, I put one uniform on. I took one off and then I put another one back on. But something really weird happened when I, I got sworn in as a deputy sheriff. You know, I'm working as a in a crime suppression team. So I got an unmarked vehicle. I got tactical clothing and we do like street level interdiction of like narcotics and problem solving. If we got burglaries in a specific area, we're hitting that area really hard to try to fix remedy the problem. And I felt normal again. It was the weirdest thing on the, I was like, oh, good. I'm awesome, right? Kind of like the, the, the combat vet that wants to go back to war because they don't feel like a fish out of water. So I was actually in an environment where my brain was operating the way it's supposed to, right? Uh, law enforcement officers, firefighters, paramedics, they're always operating fight or flight, right? Because every call they go on, not every call, but most calls they go on, you know, have the potential of, of rising to that life or death. So you're operating the way your brain is supposed to. So I felt normal again for that, that two year period. Of course, you, you got to realize now you say your, your brain is operating the way it's supposed to, but to it, to them, to their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I, I don't like, cause that's not normal. <laughs> I was going to use the word normal. That's not typical of everyone's looking to operate in fight or flight. So I wanted to kind of like get your perspective on kind of like that, uh, desire to operate at fight or flight, so to speak. So for, for PTS, right? If you got post-traumatic stress, your brain is hardwired fight or flight. Yeah, think of it, think of it in terms of, and this will probably make sense if you're, if you're a car guy, right? Um, the brain idles at a thousand RPMs. Okay. A traumatic event occurs or a critical incident occurs. You hit the gas pedal, RPMs go 7,000, 8,000. And then the foot never comes off the gas pedal. Your brain is always pushing into that fight or flight. So when you put that uniform on and you're carrying a gun and you're wearing a ballistic vest and you're interacting with people who don't like you, um, the the similarities between combat and law enforcement were eerie. Right? That's one of the first things I noticed when I was in Iraq. I was like, "Oh, this feels a lot like being a police officer." Right? Um, same mindset. Right? Because you're, you know, you're a, you're a cop. You go to a restaurant. Guess where your back is? It's to a wall. What are you doing? You're looking at the at the doorways and the exits. What are you doing? You're scanning everybody's hands. Same things you're doing when you're deployed. So that's that's what I'm talking about, that, that fight or flight response. So when I went back into law enforcement, I felt normal, right? I didn't feel like there was something wrong with me because I'm operating the way the brain is supposed to in that fight or flight environment. That's another reason why first responders, um, you, I'll, I'll give you an example. 
police officers in a 30-year career will on average be exposed to 188 traumatic incidents. All right. Think about that. You know, we outsource trauma to the first responders. And that's over a long career. And then you're also guaranteed to live about 20 years less than your average counterpart. You know, when you think about it from that context, um, that's huge. You know, that's the stress that our law enforcement officers are operating under. Firefighters, it's the same thing. Paramedics, you know, you're always going to those emergency calls, those traffic crashes. You know, you're doing CPR on a two-year-old. You know, it plays, it wreaks havoc on the body from a physical perspective. You know, that's that's that whole trauma. So when you have that RPMs pegged, you know, you're, you're, you know, your body is literally uh, producing stress hormones and adrenaline and you go into adrenal fatigue and your cortisol levels are off the charts. And then all of a sudden, uh, heart disease, right? Diabetes, pick your cancer, strokes, things that are very prevalent. Um, with folks that are in those high stress environments over long periods of time. It's a very unhealthy profession. I would say um, kind of I, like playing with your analogy, just to kind of bring that around, right? It's almost like, you know, you've got that engine pegged, right? And that's not good for the engine, right? Long-term, sure, for a short term, it could probably sit there and be pegged at 7,000 RPMs, but it's not sustainable. And similarly, I think to kind of fit it kind of in perspective, when you're affected by PTS and you're running at 7,000 RPMs 24 seven, it's just not sustainable. And you're, you're overloading your system. You're burning it out from its natural, right? Our nat- we've got our natural ways to heal ourselves and, and whatever, but you know, it's, yep. yeah. Well, you know, when, when you have those, you know, PTS symptoms, and, and I, we run into this a lot with law enforcement officers or firefighters, you know, you come off of a long day at work, you're amped, your brain is, your RPMs are going, so how do we calm those RPMs? What do we typically do? You know, a few cocktails, four or five beers, depress the system a little bit, and that's how we sleep. And, and that does extreme unhealthy issues. You know, the body can't keep it. You know, the, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk wrote the book, The Body Keeps Score, and he talks about how trauma will, will store at that cellular level of the body, and then it'll manifest itself with physical symptoms, with, you know, fibromyalgia, this, all the diseases that are associated with stress. You know, and, and, you know, in Florida, law enforcement officers are considered high risk. So they get a little bit more on their pension, not because the job is danger, more dangerous, but because they don't live as long. All right. You know, let that sink in. The average, you know, police officer will live 20 years less. Now you do get people who will, they manage stress fine. They're, they're very healthy. You know, maybe had the, they had a great support system as a child, you know, but how many of us had those perfect lives? You know, we, it ends up impacting and affecting us um, at very serious levels, you know, because. The, the, well, first off, yeah, hats off to like you mentioned the body keep score uh, in the training I went through and I picked it up. I'm actually, I just finished it this morning. Um, been reading the last couple of weeks and, you know, a couple of things there, like, you know, similar analogy, he made the comment or the analogy, like our, the, with that fight, flight, fear, fear after PTS, he kind of used that smoke detector. He's like, the smoke detector's broke. It's always alerting mm-hmm. even when there's no smoke, right? It's just, it's broken. And I, I thought that was kind of another good analogy, but he made a good point kind of in later chapters of uh, you would think that if you had a um, tough childhood, you would be more resilient to the world, like the, the challenges of the world, the hardships of the world. But he, to your point, he was saying that, in fact, those who ha- come from a more loving environment and supportive environment have the more resiliency to deal with it. It's not the other way around. I thought that was a really interesting point. 
Yeah, a lot of it is based on your perception of what trauma is and by your experiences. And, and, and then you look at the neurological connections, you know, the, the pathways neurologically will connect event to event to event. Think of it as, you know, you ever get your fishing line all tangled up and then you can't untangle it. All right. All of those traumas will dis, will actually connect to each other. So it's a compounding effect. So those that do have those tougher childhoods, their, their filters are changed. They're different. You know, they see things different. They see the world different. Whereas, you know, somebody who grew up in that loving, nurturing, you know, two parent home and, you know, had no bad, you know, adverse impact in childhood, you know, their brains are more resilient to the actual being able to bounce back. Those of us, and, and to think about it from this perspective, how many people chase the professions that are high stress that have had bad childhoods? You know, we want to help other people. We want to help ourselves. And then all of a sudden you're, you're compounding your trauma. And the next thing you know, something maybe personal happens. You know, it could be a divorce and all of a sudden everything just unravels, you know, and, and, hugely impactful ways. And sometimes it's deadly. The, uh, yeah. And, and I guess give us a little bit on that. Cause you'd mentioned some childhood experience. Like, do you feel, you know, that led to your desire to serve kind of like, kind of- there's a hundred percent connection when, when those experiences occurred, I wanted to help other people prevent other people. It's one of the reasons why I went law enforcement, military one, you want to protect yourself. I'm going to make sure this never happens again. Right. How do I do that? You know, join the military, become a police officer, firefighter, and I'm helping other people and safeguarding other people. So, yeah, it definitely was um, it directed my future for sure. There's there's no question about it. I went into the military to you know do something, be productive, help people. And then I went into law enforcement for the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think kind of what you're saying, it is that it's like it's different stages. You were mentioned coming from the military, the PTS you know, result of it, that, that high RPM and needing to get in alignment with that. And if you kind of shift the bat, that back in someone's timeline, say, Hey, similarly traumatic childhood redlines, you know, and they're living with that red line. And I, and what I've learned of you guys, um, it's unknowingly, right? Like, I think, you know, what, what I, mm-hmm. I'm, I was looking forward to about this conversation is, is bringing an awareness to what trauma is, so that we can put it, shine a light on it, right? Because I think that that's what I've taken away most over the last couple of months of what I've gotten from you guys is that, is that I didn't even know what it was really, you right. know, it, it, and, and not me. And and I've even worked with uh, folks on behalf of 220 FAR that didn't even, that, that think like it's only, it's only combat, right? Trauma's only right. combat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We run into a lot of civilians. They'll, they'll say those things like, well, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't go to war. My trauma is nothing near what yours is. All right. But let's look at it from a real perspective. Trauma is extremely subjective. All right. The emotions connected are fear, terror, and helplessness. All right. You know, you, you have no ability to do anything. You're, you're a police officer. You're doing CPR on a two-year-old. You have a two-year-old at home and you're helpless to help that kid and he dies. All right. Um, somebody takes a shot at you, maybe shoots at you, or you step on a pressure plate, detonate IED, extreme terror, fear, you know, those are things that that's that's the the those are the building blocks of what trauma is. So if I'm in combat and I experience my event and we we rate the intensity of it's a zero to ten scale, it's just like pain, right? If if my event rises to an eight, all right, and you're in a car crash where three people died, and your event rises to a ten, you're feeling the ten, I'm feeling the eight. Which one's worse? Subjectively, the car crash. So I always tell civilians, um, 
military and first responders, we do not hold a patent on trauma. I think in the United States, it's between nine and 11 million people are clinically diagnosed with PTSD. Probably two to three times of the people have that. They just never go get help and never get evaluated or assessed for it. You know, a prime example is we trained a, a police department, law enforcement agency in Central Florida, 13 of the deputies that we trained, 10 qualified for scores for PTSD. And they're working every single day. You know, that should be a that should be a wake up call to a lot of people. Um, the, the amount of stress and the pressure that that law enforcement officers are working under firefighters, the same thing. You know, it's just it's it's profound when you think of what we do or we ask people to do as a society and then parts of society turn on them. Right. And here they are. They're trying to do the right thing and help people. And then now there's part part of society is like turning against them, which adds to the helpless. The feeling it's like, what am I doing? Why, why am I risking my life for for an ungrateful community? I, mean, I couldn't imagine being a, a police officer in, in Portland, Oregon or Seattle, Washington. You know, some of those areas where there's a, l- a large movement against them. Um, yeah, it's 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 crazy. But so I, I would imagine that trauma is more prevalent, prevalent in the first responder communities um, than anybody could even imagine. Like if you actually did the assessments uh, and the cool thing is, you know, we're, we're doing now, we're actually getting ready to purchase some equipment through the nonprofit and, and we're going to embark on a study. Uh, Dr. Bequee, we're going to do the QEEG, the qualitative electroencephalograph, where we actually track the brain um, mapping. So we map the brain. You can actually see PTS in the brain without them even doing the, the subjective assessments. And that's the really cool thing. We actually worked with a police officer um, up in uh, Maryland not too long ago. And uh, Dr. Dave Hagdorn came up. He works with Marsat guys out of Camp Lejeune. And he did the, the QEEG before I did any work with her. Uh, and she also did her subjective scores. And what was interesting is Dr. Hagdorn was like, you know, looking at your brain imaging, your mapping, your brain's the worst I've ever seen. And he, and he goes, I work with Marsat guys, all right, Marine Special Operations. And then he said, now looking at your subjective scores, her scores were pegged. She was she was ele- she was at the max for PTSD. She was at the mass, max for anxiety. She was at the max for depression. He goes, your brain images match your subjective scores. And you should have seen the weight lifted. This girl was like, oh, I've been trying to tell them that, right? The unseen injuries. We can't see what's going on in the brain. But now we're actually getting to a point where we're going to be able to see that, you know, and from a health perspective, you know, how cool would that be to you know, for a, an agency to have a clean brain scan before a person ever becomes hired, you know, and then if there's issues, you resolve it, you fix it before you put them into the profession. Um, so that's kind of one of the, the areas that we're, we're looking to move towards because the, the language is wrong. PTSD, the disorder part um, is wrong. All right. It's, it's profitable. Let's put it that way. What we're really looking at moving the conversation to is human potential. What does the potential of that individual look like with that stuff off the brain, out of the brain, no longer affecting and impacting. And one of the issues that we also have is a lot of people have a hard time believing what we say, you know, but, but like Dr. Higdorn said, the, the session, I did two sessions with her and then we did a follow-up brain scan and the amygdala and the hippocampal region of the brain went back to normal within 24 hours. And his words were, that was profound. You know, that's sometimes that's like, you know, long-term therapy to get people to that using EMDR, which is the method that he uses. Uh, and he was like, this proves it's not placebo. You know, because that's one of the things that what if this is just placebo? We're actually going to be able to show and prove that it's not. All right. 
there is something physically happening in the brain. So what that's doing is if that brain can heal that quickly, is it a disorder or is it injury? You know, that's the way we look at it. We look at it as an injury. You break an arm, you put a cast on it, all right? You have that accelerator peg and the RPMs are up. We just help you take the foot off the gas pedal and get you back into a normal uh, pattern. And when that sleep restoration happens, that's where, that's the magic of it. When you hit REM sleep, that's when the brain's processing out and moving memories and, and doing the reconsolidation part, you know, you know, insomnia, um, which is the sleep deprivation, self-medication and prescribed medication, right? A lot of people don't realize many of the medications that they put us on are designed as REM sleep blockers. Well, that's like the cat is guarding the hen house at that point. That's why you keep in cycles. Why, wait, know, so, so why would they be REM? That's like unintended consequence of those meds are REM blockers if, if or you, is that? If you go, if you do the, the, go do a little bit of homework on the NIH, the National Institute of Health website and, and look for REM sleep blockers. You'll see many of the REM sleep blockers are your anti-anxieties and your SSRIs. The drugs that are prescribed for PTSD and anxiety and other issues. Well, if it's blocking your REM sleep, you're going to be you're going to be in that cycle of therapy drugs therapy drugs therapy drugs so, yeah. so when, when in, I have, in essence shutting off your natural ability to right. process these emotions at yeah. a time you need it most hmm? so to speak yeah. and is that because yeah. like whatever it's designed to do like to numb the emotions that's the intention the intention is to numb the emotions and basically make you not care right but that's that's why we lose people it's like is this all the world has to offer is numb feeling? You know, I, I, I firmly believe if the VA would stop prescribing medications like that, they would probably stop half the suicides. I think people get to the point where they just don't care anymore. Hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guide community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And you know what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against, and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lion's Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut. Break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. Even um, uh, in the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, you pointed out it, like the VA, the exposure therapy, I, want, let's not, I mean, just the exposure therapy, the positive outcomes are like 15%. Like it's mm -hmm. it's not very high. It's not very effective, let's say. Um, but it's it's the go-to. It's the it's the 12 weeks reliving it, you know, pouring it out, sucking through it, 
over and over again with um with you so you were there um jumping back to your timeline you were there you had a you were trying to go through the va process where, where what happened from there so the last um when they canceled my last appointment they couldn't get me in for eight weeks i told them i said well let me check my schedule and i'll, I'll get come back and i'll reschedule that was 2017. you want any guesses on how many times the psychologist called to see where dan jarvis was Never did. All right. So I just, that's when I started, that's when I went on the search for, to try to find a better way. I was like, there's gotta be something out there. This is, you know, by that time it's 2017. I was like, there's gotta be something out there that's better than what that, what they have to offer. Um, and I went through the EMDR, I went through accelerated resolution therapy. Um, and then I went through a process called the reconsolidation of traumatic memories, RTM protocol. And that was invited to go out. I had already started the nonprofit in April of 2018. And this was about, I think it was September of 2018. They did the very first public training. So I'm in New Mexico at the Mind Research Network at the University of New Mexico. And there's about 25 mental health counselors and they're conducting the very first public training. And I'm, 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 I'm coming out of a law enforcement profession, right? So I'm, I'm extremely skeptical. I'm like, these guys are making some pretty ballsy claims, right? Cop brain is like, yeah, I'm going to call bull crap, you know? And uh, the second day I was talking, we were on a break and I was talking to the, the, the trainer, the guy name was Alan. And I'm like, you know, you guys are making some pretty lofty claims on PTS. I said, you know, if, if I'm going to refer or recommend anybody to go through this, I, I want to experience it myself. Basically I was calling bullshit. And he said, yeah, you want to do it in front of the class when we come off break in 15 minutes? I'm like, bro, I carried a gun for a living. I'm not scared of people. Let's, let's do this. All right. And, and my intentions were, was like more of an act of defiance on what they were saying. I'm like, I'm going to show these guys that they're full of crap. Right. You know, that's just the skeptical nature of, of, of the human brain. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. Because they have a, they claim 90% success. Right. So I'm like, I'm sitting in front of the class. Now that process, it's kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy on the front end, you know, the, the exposure, they have you talk about it. And then when you trigger they stop you, they reground you, and then they run the visual kinesthetic disassociation part, which is the part we use. Um, they run that visual kinesthetic part, and then you'd follow up with talk therapy on the backside. And I remember I was, I was telling the story uh, when, when we had lost uh, Doug, uh, when the IED blast went off, and I triggered pretty hardcore, and I didn't, ex I didn't expect that in front of people. I was like, I don't even know these people, and I'm getting emotional up here. And Next thing I know, he's asking me what color my Dodge truck is. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm a Ford, I'm a Ford guy, right? So I was like, what? I would never drive a Dodge. I have actually, but I would never do that, you know? And then I realized he totally got me out of, it was a, he broke the state of the emotion. And then we got regulated a little bit, talked a little bit, and then we set up the process. And then, you know, after the rewind part of that, I was like, he, he asked me to tell the story again. I started telling the story again. And I was telling the story and I was waiting for it. I'm like, where's the emotions? It's going to come at any moment. It's not coming. And then I got through the whole story and I literally looked at him. I'm like, dude, I said, what kind of Jedi stuff is this? Right. Half the class is laughing at that. And the other half is crying because I just watched some, a real world traumatic event just get basically neutralized. Um, and then the sleep restoration was the most impactful because now all of a sudden, your body's able to process. Um, and one of the, one of the therapists there, uh, she's actually an air force veteran and, uh, she was, works out of Orlando first Orlando counseling center. So I'm like, Cynthia, I need to schedule some, some appointments with you. I, I'm on, I'm blocking two weeks off. Cause I'm like, we're, we're doing two weeks worth of, of this stuff. 
I'm getting rid of everything. And then literally after the third appointment with her, I was like, Hey, uh, Cindy, I'm, I'm going to have to cancel the rest of my appointments because I really don't have anything left. Right. Um, which is it's profound. Like, I mean, the, the, the fact that you can go through your entire trauma history in a very short period of time, one is, is mind boggling. And, and it doesn't make sense. I mean, this does not make sense on any level. Um, but, but you feel that, you know, and, and when I realized how real this was, was the following August, all right, August 19th is when we lost Doug. July, getting ready to come into August was was difficult for me because I knew that that anniversary would come up and you get all those triggers and, and all those emotions and, and, you know, start drinking a little bit more and, you know, worrying about that date. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at my phone and I see my Facebook feed and I had missed the anniversary of his death, which for me was like, holy crap, right? You know, he passed in 2011 and every year those months, that month was horrendous. And all of a sudden I just missed the anniversary of his death. And that's when you realize, wow, that disconnected the triggers. Um, and I'm like, this is crazy. So that was kind of my paradigm change. Um, the VA actually funded a study up at Walter Reed comparing exposure therapy, the VA's gold seal treatment to the RTM protocol was supposed to publish in September of 2021. Uh, it was a two year clinical trial. Uh, and then they decided to punt it to 2023. So they're kicking it down the road. Why, why would they do that? That's, that's my question. They've already got the data. They already know what they have, but yet they've, they've decided to put another two years and that that's going to be 16,000 veteran suicides, you know, cause if they had something that was non re-traumatizing and non-stressful, imagine your whole trauma history, you know, within four or five sessions, you're, you're done with therapy with that part. You can do the cognitive therapy at that point. You get that 800 pound gorilla gone, you know, and, P and veterans wouldn't be afraid to go to, to therapy at that point. You know, the, the exposure therapy, what's so difficult about that is, well, one, you can't, the, the, the quit rate is very, very high, extremely high, the success rate. And, and you got to realize what is, what the VA considers a success in the clinical world, a 10 point decline in scores is considered a success for them. All right. You're not going to go from a 74 score on the PSSI five, which is a zero to 80. You're not going to, if you go from a 74 to a 64, they consider that successful. All right. You've had a, that's a, that's a success for them. That's a, you know, that's a high reduction, you know, but the step that you're seeing with what we're doing or what the RTM does, that 74 is going down to zeros, ones, and twos, you know, that's not clinically significant. That's clinically gone, right? That's asymptomatic at that point. Um, so it's wild. It's been a wild ride. I, I, I will say that the, um, uh, we originally started sponsoring therapists. We would pay to get them trained in the RTM protocol, um, and then when COVID hit, you know, everything kind of changed because all the money dried up and we're like, you know, and then you realize, you know, therapists are um, restricted by the states. So we're like, you know, if wherever they are, that's the only people that are going to get help with it because they wouldn't do cross state, you know, telehealth. Telehealth was not even, you know, approved for mental health until COVID hit. So we, we did is in, instead of like thrown in the towel. We just, we just regrouped we, we the board of directors for 220 got together and said, Hey, how do we fix this? How do we address this? So we're like, Hey, you know what? We're a nonprofit. We've got a lot of latitude in what we can do as an organization. And then we just went down the rabbit hole of neuro linguistic programming NLP. That's where this stuff um, was, is rooted in. So the visual kinesthetic was originally developed for a fast phobia cure. 
for like fear of heights, fear of frogs, snakes, lizards, whatever. And what we did is we, we did a lot of modifications of it um, to get it to where it is right now. Because if you look at the two side by side, they're not the same, but they're based on the same principles. You're saying and the uh, so, visual kinetic and the NLP are not yeah, the same, but based on the same. Yeah, visual kinesthetic disassociation. So you got to imagine what you're doing is you're creating those start points and end points. You know, what you did before the trauma, what you did after the trauma, and you create those black and white images. The VKD, you're, you're in a movie theater setting from a projection booth, and then you're watching the screen and you're playing the movie forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, but you're always watching the event. What we do is we're, we're just going to stay watching ourselves versus the event. So we, we further disassociate them with the VKD does, you know, and then do things like, well, who goes to the movie theaters anymore? Right. Most people, it's, it's a it's a cell phone. Right. So, hey, use your cell phone. Use your iPad. Where are you the most comfortable? You might not be comfortable in a movie theater, but you can be in your house. I worked with a Marine who didn't feel safe anywhere. Right. So this was Johnny Walker. Right. He was in our documentary, Healing the Heroes of 9-11. And he goes, he goes, well, I don't feel safe anywhere. I said, well, do you trust the Marines you work with? Oh, hell yeah. You know, just like a, a typical grunt, right? And so I want you in your mind, I want you to watch your squad enter and clear your house, right? And then they're going to come outside and they're going to hold perimeter around the house. Would that make you feel safe? And he does it in his mind. He goes, oh, yeah, I could do this. And then we did it. And then we got that disconnect. Uh, Joe Nigro worked with him first. And then I worked with him on a second event. <laughs> it's funny because... He was like, dude, you're Yoda. I'm like, like no, 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 no. He's like, you just got rid of 20 years of survivor guilt like that, you know? And it was just so funny to watch it. You know, I, I, I get a kick out of it because I know what they're going to experience, even though they're very skeptical going into it. Um, but to see that profound change is, is, it's just remarkable. You know, it's, um, so anyways, you got those visual kinesthetics, you got the visual imagery before and after an event, you drain the color, you turn them black and white, and then you watch yourself third person, watch the movie, you know, cause once that triggers active, there's literally a four to six hour window that you can, it's malleable. So you can change the state that's attached to the memory. Oh, so we're oh, not okay. changing the memory. The memory is never going to change. What we're changing is that emotion because the problem isn't the visual. It's the feeling attached to the visual. All right. So think of amygdala neural pathway connected to it, a visual, and then another neural pathway connected to an emotion. That's kind of the makeup of PTS. That's why you, Maybe you smell something that's in this visual or you see something and then boom, this, the emotion just goes crazy. And that's what you're feeling. And that's what makes you, you know, gets you sick. You know, that vagus nerve starts getting active. The stress hormones go crazy and then your adrenaline goes up and then you're, you're anxious. You know, that's, that's the problem. It's those feelings. It's not what you see. So when you get to that disassociated part and you get them regulated, uh, watching themselves and the self watching the movie, then you enter the end of the movie and you just do a rapid rewind and you go from a black and white picture at the end to a color picture at the beginning in about two seconds. And that's when the neural pathways disconnect because the brain at that point is like, it's, it's almost like you're hacking the brain, right? So now the brain sees the event ending at the good point in color. It's going from the newer memory in black and white to the older memory in color and it's reversing the order. So the brain looks at it. I'm not supposed to do this. That's the amygdala saying, all right, timeout. And that's where that neural pathway disconnects. And once that pathway disconnects, the pathway between the emotions and the memory disconnect. Well, guess what? They got to go somewhere. And this is the reconsolidation piece. The, the memory goes into the cerebellum, your long term. And then the emotion goes into the hippocampal region, which is where the emotions are stored for future use. And once they split, that starts that whole reconsolidation piece. And typically between the first and third session, 
is when the REM sleep will reset. And then all of a sudden you feel like a whole different person because now the brain has got a new tool, right? You're, you've given it a new skill. It can go now into REM sleep and it can process out those emotions and move the memories into the hard drive and get it out of the thumb drive. That's kind of like the amygdala, easy access, emotions, memories, you know, feelings. So you, you change that. And then that's when the brain actually starts to reset itself. And then it starts to healing itself. The neuroplasticity hits, you know, think of somebody with TBI injuries on top of trauma. The brain is fighting, you know, that the, the, the hurts of the brain are going so active. It can't work on healing the, the physical injuries. It's just working on the emotional piece. When you shut off that emotional piece, now the brain can go focus on the physical piece and that neuroplasticity will then the brain will then over time start working on healing itself. So it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, it's neuroscience 101. I mean, it's a, you guys, it's got a lesson in it. It's, um, it's a me and you know, and it's, it's so hard to describe, but I can tell you, you know, my own experience serve being trained and serving others through TRP and EMP. Like I'm batting a thousand, man. Like it's, and you know, the folks I've been able, had the pleasure and honor to serve in this capacity, you know, from, this impact that that you guys have brought together, I, I I've, I've said this a thousand times, but I want to say it on a podcast. I love that point at the end, mm-hmm. and you were talking to me about one I just recently served, and and you know we start the process like, hey, rate it, rate you do the trigger, think about it, what's your rating, zero to ten, and and my man was like, ten, brother, it's been ten for twenty years, it's ten. Mm-hmm. I don't even, I, it's a 10. <laughs> and I said, okay. And we went through the process. And then the end he goes, and this is my favorite part for every session. He, they give you that deer in the headlights look confused. <laughs> and you ask them, Hey, again, think of that negative event, think of the event that's been troubling you, you know, no negative emotion, zero, severely intense, 10, where are you now? And they just have this bewilderment in their face and they go, yeah. and that's my man was like, that was a 10. He's like, <laughs> zero, but I don't want to say zero. Like I feel like I should be saying one, but I, I, I wouldn't be being honest. What and and you know and and that's just this relief that comes over them, and then they can talk. They can talk about it. You know, some some folks I work with after session, they just start they start processing it. Um, mm-hmm. and they 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 can talk about it. Like, and you know, I've had people tell me, man, I've never told anyone that. And, and, and look, the beauty of the 20 to zero process, like you said, we don't have to talk about it. I tell them up front, like, you're welcome to talk to me about anything, but you don't have to, you know, we're going to get you healed up either way. But afterwards they feel like this, I, I'll say empowerment. Maybe they feel like they can, they, they can talk about it. And uh, right. some I've come at the end of those sessions at those points when they hit that zero, they're like, and they're just, and then go, I've never told anyone ever that, you know, and I'm like, that's because you can, you're processing it, man. Like you can like, and, and I've still, and I learn every time I talk to you and hear from you, you know, uh, that's they're they're detached from that emotion. So now they can logically, you know, process it, I guess. Yeah. I, I speak at a lot of events and people will always come up. How can you talk about that? I was like, I can talk about it because. I don't feel it anymore, right? Before, before I was healed, the story owned me. It, I was literally that story's little bitch, right? When you, when you fix that, you now own your own story. I can share my story with anybody. You know, there are times where I still might get some emotion because 
you know, Doug was a good kid. There's still some sadness there, but that's just because there's a value to him. And that's a normal human emotion. But the visceral emotion that's connected is gone. That fear, the, that terror. Maybe we put it another way. The one that physically controlled you, right? Like yes. that attachment is gone, gone, right? You can still feel the emotion per se, but it's this, the, this, the weighted severity of how it manifests itself, right? Like that's the... That's what's what's been processed. Yeah, we're, we're we're emotional creatures, right? So when those emotions are active, we follow them. You know, if it's a bad emotion, we'll follow that bad emotion. Maybe it's anger, right? And all of a sudden, you're angry for a week because you're constantly recycling that anger emotion. Um, we just like with the good emotions, we love to follow the good emotions. But when your when your limbic system has been hijacking the brain for so long, we typically follow the bad emotions, which is why we isolate. All right, what does that do to the quality of life when we isolate? Or maybe we're Fighters versus isolators, right? And all of a sudden you're fighting in bars every night because you feel good fighting. You, know, you want to get some of that rage out, you know? Um, so we follow those emotions and, and you know, from 9-11, 2001 to current day, we've probably had 130, 140,000 veterans incarcerated, making really poor decisions, right? Based on the trauma, based on the experiences. And, and you know, you, you hit on the other, we did the EMP process, the emotions management process, that one to me is almost equally as profound as the trauma work because uh, once the trauma is lifted, that's kind of the bear hug. Bear hugs all the emotions. It's got shame under it. It's got anger under it. It's got sadness under it. It's got fear under it. And then boom, you pull that trauma off and then you have some some raw emotions. Like, you know, maybe you were molested as a kid. Now you got a lot of anger. That anger is manifesting itself, but you can actually release those emotions, you know, and that part. And I'll share probably the most profound session that I ever did was with a World War II veteran, right? He had already done the work on the trauma and Mel Jenner was his name. He was, his last combat mission was a B-17 waste gunner flying over Normandy. So you can imagine the history that that guy saw. His best friend was in a B-17 off to his flank that got shot down, literally watched it spiraling down into the ocean. And he was like, do you ever think it's really ever gone? I said, what's that? I said, the, the, the PTSD. I said, what are you feeling, Mel? And he said, well, I felt guilty every day that I've stepped foot on U.S. soil since the war ended. This guy is 98 years old at this time. I'm like, whoa. I said, Mel, that's survivor guilt. That's that's an equal 800-pound gorilla to PTSD. So what, with him, what we do is you provoke the emotion. You get him to feel the emotion. You know, he was Obviously, he was a 10 because he was extremely emotional. Then we do the disassociate. We get him away from it. And then we have to change the framing because the brain's got to make sense out of everything that comes into it, right? So – at that moment when his buddy died, it made sense to him that he should feel guilt for, for him living and his buddy dying. That's, that's how his brain processed it. So he had that anchor to that emotion. And when you change the frame, it allows him to look at it differently. So I said, okay, Mel, you're now in Oscar's plane. You're going down. And Oscar's in your plane. And he's going to continue to live. And as you spin down in towards the ocean, every once in a while, you'll get a glimpse. What do you want for Oscar? How do you want his life to play out? And he came up with all these ideas and not want him to have a great family and a wonderful, whatever, wonderful world and wonderful life. And I says, do you want him to feel guilty for your death for the rest of his life? Oh, no, never. I would never want that. So Mel, what makes you think he wants anything less out of you? And I'll never forget. He stopped, he's sitting there and his eyes get really big and he goes, well, I've never thought of that. For 70 years, he carried that burden. And in a, in a freaking second, when that frame made sense to the brain, he released the emotion. He let it go. So he no longer has that visceral emotion connected because he applied a different perspective. You know, 
most of those things, we, we establish those emotions when we're very young and we don't understand how to process. Uh, so you can actually, you know, whether it's anger, you know, maybe because anger is one of those things where you can think about doing something tomorrow that would make you pissed off and you all of a sudden you're pissed off and you haven't even done it yet. Right. That's that future thought process. So when you see people release the emotion of the anger and they get really confused because it's that was their go to, especially for us guys. Right. That's our big go to. We're safe with anger. It's a normal. You know, we're men, the bravado. There's nothing wrong with getting pissed off. And when they release that anger, now you have them think about that event that would piss them off in the future. And they're like, oh, can't find it It's because you've updated the operating system. You've went back to the root of that emotion, updated the operating system. So it's pretty cool, man. I can't I, I'm just I feel so blessed to be on this journey. Um, the impact that we're having, not only the, with the veterans and the first responders, but the families, you know, think about it when, when, how their kids react to them differently, you know, because that generational issue with trauma, you know, the way a parent acts towards a child will impact the child's life. Right. So if you're a, a spouse or, or your dad's got PTS or your mom's got PTS, and you're always walking on eggshells because you don't know how they're going to react. How does that impact that child? You know, so. Yeah, it's it's so it's so cool to be able to see the whole family unit kind of heal through processes like that. It's, yeah, because that in itself for a child, right? We talked about different perspectives of trauma and trauma. One of the things being the helplessness, right? The terror mm -hmm. and helplessness. And if you think as a child who has a PTS-driven parent who is possibly traumatizing them, and that child is helpless to the, you know what's going on. I, that, that was just something else that gave me some new insights and appreciation for in uh, the body keep score was just the chain, right? The, mm -hmm. the chain of the history of trauma being passed on and why, because not curing it, you know, again, mm -hmm. trauma to that seven-year-old who the dad is traumatized as well and flipping out. And, but that child is still a child in a helpless environment, possibly fearing terror for himself mm -hmm. or those, right. You know, so it's, and there, boom, there it is. It just got paid. Trauma just got paid forward, um, right. so to speak, unfortunately. the uh, You mentioned before – so did I hear this right? Before you went to New Mexico, you had already started the nonprofit. Right. And that had you pivot to kind of what you're doing now. What, what were you going to do? Like what was the game plan? Um, initially, before I even started the nonprofit, I had an opportunity to build out a gun range for a – big corporation and I was going to run the gun range and that whole thing. That's what got me out of the sheriff's office. And then that door closed pretty quickly. And then I was like, okay, now what? And, um, my ex-wife, uh, had a gentleman speak at, uh, the sheriff's office to a leadership conference. So like all sergeants and above had to go through this training and he invited me to a, a men's leadership retreat. And that's where it was April of 2018. And that's when I had that you know, Scott was like, Dan, you look like you have something. There's like 50, 60 guys in this training. And, and he's, I'm just sitting there. I got this look on my face. He was, man, you look like you got something you want to say. And I just want to just said 22 zero. I said, well, what's that? I said, we're going to, there's 22 veterans every day taking their own lives. We're going to take it to zero. How we were going to fix that. I had no idea, but that was, I was like, that's when the 22 zero was actually spoken. And then next thing you know, you know, we're putting $15,000 of our own money into the nonprofit to get it started. I didn't know what we were going to do. I didn't know how we were going to do it. Um, you know, I was an NCO. I was an infantry guy, right? Ready, fire, aim. We'll, we'll, yeah, you know, we just yeah. fire after we start shooting. And that's when I just went down that that journey and that that rabbit hole. So, and then not too much longer after the yep, ask not too much received. There it was. Yep. Yeah. We started the, started exploring things, and next thing you know, 
you know, I think right now we're probably a little bit over 4,500 people. And that's probably a very low conservative number that we've actually impacted because um, we've lost contact with all of the therapists that we actually paid for their training. So, you know, that's just what I know what we're doing now as, with peer coaches and, and you know, what. Um, yeah, it just it's 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 mind blowing. So what would be the message? You know, a couple of things for you about trauma that I just want to like make sure it's clear and out there from your perspective, because I think there there's a few things that I wanted to touch on and get you to kind of speak about, which is, you know, the importance of the courage to speak up. But even before that, like, what are some symptoms of trauma, right? Like what, what are some tell signs that you may be suffering from PTS, regardless of the source, right? Because it's back to the right. different 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 perspective of people. And so what would be the message you would share with people about kind of the stigma, this lack of awareness of what it is and so on. So some of the the symptoms to look out for one is sleep quality. You know, are you are you getting to sleep? Are you staying to sleep? Are you waking up five times during the night? Are you waking up in a pool of sweat? Is your are you doing cardio when you wake up in the middle of the night? Because that's indicative of, of your replaying a trauma inside the brain. Um, sometimes there's parts of those traumatic events that you can't remember, like pieces are gone. That's an indicator that the brain is trying to protect you. Um, emotions flooding you whenever you're least expecting it is another one. The, the inability to focus is big. Um, just, you know, hypervigilance, you know, do you put your back to the wall and are you always looking at the exits? Are you always watching people's hands? Um, do you stop before you walk through a corner? You know, all, a lot of those things are signals that there's something uh, going on. Now, the stigma that's attached to trauma, and, and this is a great conversation. Um, there's a Dr. Frank Ockberg that I've, I've had several conversations with. Um, he was one of the original editors of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual in 1980 when PTSD was added to that manual. And he realized pretty quickly that labeling it PTSD did a major disservice to, to people because that's when the stigma was attached. Disorder, right? Back when they said my diagnosis was post-traumatic stress disorder with major depressive disorder. Well, the only thing I heard in that conversation was disorder, disorder. I'm broken. Yeah. There's something yeah. wrong with me. And you know, with, with some sort of permanence, right? Like, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, that's the other thing too, man, because um, when I had my paradigm changed, I go back to my VA psychiatrist and I tell him I want to be reevaluated. Right. And I remember the conversation. And he's like, why? What's wrong? He first defaulted. What's wrong? I said, well, nothing's wrong. I don't have PTSD anymore. I want, you know, I want my rating from 50% to drop to zero. Give the money to somebody who needs it. And he's a psychiatrist, mind you. And he goes, well, that's impossible. You can't cure PTSD. You're going to have it for the rest of your life. And you're going to need to manage it with therapy and medication. He's a doctor. He's the professional, right? So people tend to put stock in what these people tell you. And he does, his paradigm is so closed off. He didn't believe in the possibility. And like the next couple conversations, you know, had to go back every four months or three months, whatever. And next time I went, I gave him the research on the RTM protocol. Right? And then we had a conversation again after that. You know, did you read the research? And he's like, but it's still, he would never, he wouldn't reevaluate me. He would not, he wouldn't do it. You know, and then later found out that they won't touch those. They call them forever diagnosis. The only time they'll drop a, a rating for PTSD is if they can prove that there's fraud because they just don't believe that you can, you can heal it. You know, because they've never seen it. You know, they've never, they've never, they've never peered outside of that world of peer-reviewed science. You know, because all peer-reviewed literature means is thirty doctors read the same article and, and all agree on it. Well, there's no room for innovation at that point. You know, and this stuff isn't new. I mean, 
you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, you know, Milton Erickson, Fritz Perls, Virginia Satir, those are some of the big names of psychology from the 50s and 60s. That's where this stuff comes from. But it died with them. You know, and all we're trying to do is bring it back to life uh, because we, I, well, I saw a need for me. And then when I felt it, I'm like, we got to get this to everybody. And, and that's kind of what's morphed us into a uh, peer support. You know, it was the clinical world, the naysayers, the people that said we can't do it. You know, I had a conversation with a VA clinical psychologist uh, in Orlando. Of course, she was beating me upside my head with her PhD and telling me that this couldn't possibly exist. It's snake oil. And I'm like, I'll pay for your training. I'll pay for your transportation. I'll pay for your lodging and your meals if you'll just go get trained in Tallahassee when we do this training in, in December of 2019. And she goes, I in good conscience could never do such a thing. You know, I, I, you know, I'm like, oh, all right. I said, you know, I'm just going to train my brother and sister to the left and right of me. And we'll just make your profession a lot less relevant. She didn't like that, but that's the drill sergeant coming out. You know, what she said, when she said we couldn't do it, I'm like, all right, hold my beer. All right, let's we'll show you this. And the cool part is the genie's out of the bottle, right? They ain't going back. There's no changing what's what's happening now. Because um, now we've got like Dr. Bequi, you know, he's a psychologist. He's a licensed professional counselor. You know, and he's starting the process to, to get that what they call evidence-based um, evidence-based prolonged exposure is evidence-based with a 15% success rate, right? Yeah. That, to right, drop yeah, them. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's evidence-based. Um, but what we're doing, you know, well, Nick Davis, he, he, was, he would jokingly call it, well, we're not evidence-based, we're success-based, right? You know, that's kind of like a, you know, you know. And, and I'm going to need to use that because some of the things that locally just seeing the impact and the success of it is um, I've been getting the word out, word of mouth here locally so that I can go talk to the Legion, the VFW, the Sheriff's Department, the EMS with like, hey, here's some local trusted that you know. It's not just me telling you this. I want I want you to hear from folks that I've served that have been impacted from it. And and I was gonna tell you, um, one of the that you that I hope you appreciate and hopefully you're hearing this in other places, but one of the folks I recently served uh that through twenty two zero, uh, his source was his primary care doctor and i was like i was like you i said i saw on your sheet your 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 primary care referred you to 220 and he goes yeah he he read about you guys in some article or online or something i was like that was that's that's flipping awesome like you know i was yeah, just it's, it's awesome it's so cool because we've had licensed mental health counselors send people to us right because they couldn't they couldn't fix them you know, the hope, the hope, I mean, I would love to have every therapist trained to do what we do because it would just make a better world. You know, I, I, you look at the therapists and they're technically a force multiplier because everyone's funneling for help to those folks. You know, we have to go out and find people that need help, whereas they're coming to the therapist. So the goal would be to have them to get trained because the, the whole society as, as a whole could actually help. You know, think about, you know, the youngest to go through the TRP is four years old, Right. What does that kid's life look like 20 years trauma-free versus with trauma, right? Um, I recently worked with a, a friend of mine, his 10-year-old son, you know, just the other day, and he couldn't believe it. Like, he, he drove from Orlando to, to Winter Haven to the house. He said he couldn't believe the conversations he was having on the way home. He said, it was my old son. He kept talking. He, he wouldn't stop talking, right? Uh, I worked with a 7-year-old girl who was, was run over by a, an 85-year-old driver in a Starbucks parking lot. And all she talked about was death for 10 months with her dad. And so he was a firefighter that I'd worked with. And when he had his aha moment, he goes, please tell me this works with children. I'm like, oh, kids are easier than adults. They actually listen to what you tell them to do. And they do it. And I did 20 minutes worth of work with her. And now she's 
back to normal, not talking about death anymore, you know. So the impact isn't just us vets and first responders. The impact is civilians at large, domestic violence survivors, human trafficking survivors, you know, um, victims who've lost folks to homicides, you know, the, 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 it's, it's endless, you know, look at your prison populations, right? Cause that's a really cool. We're, we're getting some good connections. Um, we may be training some inmates out in California uh, prisons that are like lifers and then they can work internally. So, you know, imagine what that, what that does to that population, you know, um, 97% of females that are incarcerated in prison were sexually assaulted before they ever entered the system. And 70% of the men were, so it's all trauma-based and it's always, it's the missing link. You know, it's the trauma that leads to the behavior that leads to, to incarceration. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, I, I, there's, there's, we've, we've trained a therapist out in Australia. She works with vets and first responders out there. Uh, you know, we trained a cop up in Canada. Um, we trained a doctor in Ethiopia. So he was working with the survivors of the Ethiopian genocide. I'm pretty sure we're going to be in the Ukraine at some point, you know, uh, we trained a, a pastor out in California. He translated it to Spanish. He'll be taking it to El Salvador this summer. Um, so, I mean, the, it's, the, the reach is, is endless. And, and when you look at the condition of the world right now, you know, we need people to start letting some anger go and start letting some trauma go so that we can get back to being good, decent human beings. A hundred percent. And, and, and we need more soldiers in the good fight, right? Like that, like there's a good fight to be had here. Um, and we need more soldiers in the good fight. And we need this awareness. We need to shine a light on what is trauma, the effects of the trauma, and the fact that we can cure it. It's not, it's not a disorder. It's not permanent. It is, it is something. And so um to bring it home, Dan, one again, I I have much love and respect for what you're doing. I, I quickly fell in love with this just because of the success that I've seen firsthand. I've, I personally felt that, you know, seeing that those I get to serve. So I, I'll be forever grateful for, I say that I, I guess this gift of service in a way, you know, to like the awareness and, and to be able to help, you know, help you. Cause I I'm with you with the part, like we, the world can be saved. <laughs> it's just another tool to do it, man. And um, so that said, like, give us a little bit about what you're looking for, for 220 right now, how people get, get in touch, you know, so on. Yeah, so our biggest growth is going to be with active first responders. So like police departments, fire departments, training. If you if you run a peer support program, reach out to us. We'd love to to work with you guys to train you so that you can intervene when the stress is just happened versus becomes and develops a problem. Um, if you're interested in becoming a 220 coach, you can you can send an email to Dan at 220.org. Um, we'll do assessments and evaluate, and make sure you know you're the right fit. Um, and you know, if, if you're needing services, get help at 220.org, just, you know, give us an opportunity to, to show you what life can possibly look like. Um, you'll, you won't regret it. And if you're skeptical, we need skeptics. That's the only way that was Dr. Bequee, right? Me, I was a skeptic. We tend to be the biggest drivers of, of moving forward because, you know, like Dr. Bequee said, you know, if, if this does what you say it does, you know, I'm, I'm going to be joined at your hip. And, and when we trained him, he came down to the Sumter County Sheriff's Office training and, you know, after the second day and he watched me run a sergeant through the protocol and, and another corporal, uh, he looked right at me, he goes, can I talk to the group? I'm like, yeah, he goes, I came here to prove you were full of shit. That was his initial reaction. And I'm like, good, you're good. That's what we need. You know, don't just take my word for it. Experience it yourself. So if you're that skeptic, 
all it is is a little bit of time, right? There's no money for vets or first responders. You know, you just get a little bit of time. The only thing you lose, maybe an hour, two hours of your time and a label. That's it. And get your sleep back. Get your life yeah. back. Yeah, I was going to say, but you get the gift of your life back, you know. Um, hey, and here's the other cool part. We're not mental health counselors, right? So I can't say you have it or don't have it. All I want to do is help you sleep better and not put a gun in your mouth. So whatever you tell the VA, who cares, right? We're not reporting anything to them. They wouldn't believe us even if we did. So you don't have to worry about losing benefits. That's what I'm saying. They wouldn't take mine. Yeah, and I yeah. told them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, damn, man. Again, I appreciate you, brother. I honor what you're doing. Happy to help. And uh, and, and thanks for coming on and uh, telling your story and pushing this thing forward. Dale, thanks for the opportunity, man. Appreciate it. All right. Yeah. We'll talk soon, brother.